Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast we speak to Jackson Carlaw, the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives. Carlaw was recently named Wag of the Year at the Hollywood Political Awards in recognition of some of his wittier contributions in Parliament. He's still someone worth listening to on the serious issues of the day. We'll get to that interview shortly, but first I'm joined by journalists Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to talk about what's been happening over the past week. And Andrew, uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon upset some people uh, by saying that she has time on her side during an interview with the Financial Times last week. Is she uh, is she just banking on supporters of the union dying off eventually, do you think? <laughs> well, I, definitely quite a few of her opponents suggested that's exactly what she's thinking. So so in the interview, she said, you know, I, I've got democracy on my side. If they, they being the UK government, think it's about playing a, a waiting game, I've probably got time on my side as well. You look at it, Denmark, graphics of the support for independence, well, I'm not sure it's going to get you out of the conundrum. So um, we know that polls consistently show the support for independence is strongest amongst the young, uh, 60% among undecided um, under 35s in one recent poll, uh, you know, weakest amongst the elderly. Um, but but that, that said, the comments have obviously infuriated or are really upset quite a lot of people. You know, you're Ian Murray calling them, the, the Scottish Labour MP calling them crass. You the, the Tory MSP Donald Cameron saying they're appalling and then chilling. You know, Nicola Sturgeon is implying that the independence movement will benefit from older people passing away. And there was some criticism too from independent supporters. You know, Alex Salmond himself said supporters of independence should be a bit concerned by the interview. You know, what we can't and mustn't do is constantly march people up to the top of the hill and tell them that a referendum is just around the corner. Um, which is, I, I think, a, a, a metaphor. A metaphor? Is that a metaphor? A simile? Simile that he's... Is it a metaphor? I think, I think it's a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit, yeah, of, a, it's a it's a bit of a hackneyed metaphor now. They seem to use it every other week. I mean, that, that suggests that she's playing an incredibly long game, even, even longer than some uh, Alba supporters may have feared if she's waiting mm. for a, a basically sizable chunk of the Scottish population to, uh, to die. <laughs> well, I mean, she, she said that, you know, there will be a referendum by the end of 2023, and I think we should be seeing some, you know, the, uh, we have civil servants now working on the prospectus for that referendum, answering some difficult questions about that, and I think we're expecting some things are coming from that quite soon. So, you know. Yeah. Also, also Andrew, it sort of discounts the... If you, if you talk about demographics, it, it discounts the idea that people can actually change their opinion in time. I mean, I know she's talking about having a referendum in a couple of years, but people have been known to change their, their political views uh, during the course of their life, if not over, over a period of years. Absolutely, you know, and, and the SNP and the, the independence movement still have these quite difficult questions to answer over, you know, things like currency and things like borders. And, you know, I, 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 it's that thing of as people get older and they become, uh, they have perhaps have more money in or, or things like mortgages and, you know, things like sizable pension pots, then maybe they sort of move from, from, from willing to take a risk to, to not willing to take a risk so much. Um, Maybe look at the last, you know, I think it was the last opinion poll on independence, which was the one carried out for a political, uh, you know, and it, it is it is, it is, is quite stark when you look at that difference. So I think it's 56% of 16 to 24 year olds, 49% of 25 to 34 year olds, and 54% of 35 to 44 year olds say they would vote yes. That's compared to just... 31% of those aged 65 or above. So, so yes, people do change their minds, but, you know, it does look like the majority of the under 65s are, 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 are quite keen on, on independence. 
Louise, you're you're young. Is that is that just people becoming ground down, <laughs> ground down and less idealistic as they get older? <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, Andrew mentioned there about um, homeowning and pensions being a big thing with the independence referendum, and and whether you're more likely to support the union or not. And of course, you know, there's a generation of young people now that aren't necessarily going to get on the property ladder and don't necessarily have pensions to fall back yeah. on so maybe that will be the big the big change but who, who knows and, and louise i mean uh, scottish secretary alistair jack made some comments last week about about what kind of hurdle we need to get over for there to be a second referendum um he, and he i mean he does kind of seem to be moving the goalposts on that one quite a bit uh, I mean, I don't know. He's always said that it should be a, a generation away. And then there's always that issue of like, how do you find a generation? Um, so, I mean, at least I guess that now he's actually stuck a, a number on it. Was it was it 25 years that I think he said? Um, but then he's also added the caveats of it needing to have 60% support for independence, but also 60% support for a referendum to take place, which I'm not really sure how you measure that like reliably and separately because presumably the people that want independence are also going to want a referendum and how many people are going to not want independence but want a referendum so so you know i i suppose that is is kind of shifting the goalposts a little bit and making it harder for a referendum to take place but one, I suppose that's kind of what the UK government want. They don't want a referendum to happen. And two, at least it's giving them an answer to the, the question of, right, you've said, you know, Scotland has the right to self-determination. If it wants it, people can choose it, but then not giving them a path to decide how to choose that. So it, there's now a path there, albeit one that's maybe difficult to actually walk. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> uh... I mean, 20, 25 years would certainly uh, would certainly fit in well with um, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, demographics plan. <laughs> um, not not entirely sure it fits in with where she she wants to go in in terms of uh, her own political um, ambitions. Um, I mean, you never know. She's doing well. She might still be in power in twenty five years. We don't know who's taking know. from the SNP yet. So. There's, there, there's a thought. Um, <laughs> Andrew, we've had uh, we've had a report published today by um, MPs at Westminster on on the sort of fairly fairly bleak assessment of of the UK's initial response to the pandemic. There's not a lot in that report about uh, the, the devolved nations. Nothing sort of specific to Scotland. Where are we with the the, the sort of Scotland only inquiry into into COVID? Well, well, just to be uh, so, just to be completely clear. So, the report that came out today was published by the. Health and Social Care Committee and the Science and Technology Committee in the House of Commons, um, rather than any official uh, inquiry, a public inquiry. Um, you know, it, and it said that the UK government could have done more to stop COVID spreading early in the pandemic, um, that they didn't, was one of the worst of our public health failures. Um, the, you know, the, the initial reaction or the initial uh, approach taken by the UK government and, in fairness, by the Scottish government, who followed the same sort of clinical advice at this point, uh, very early on, what was to try and manage the situation and uh, affect, you know, achieve like, herd immunity by infection uh, that ultimately sort of, you know, slowed down or, or led to, to delayed the uh, introducing the first lockdown, which they think could have cost many, many lives. Um, 
As you said, so the report predominantly focuses on, on the pandemic in England. The committee did not look at steps taken uh, in Scotland, Wales or, or Northern Ireland. Um, we know that Scotland is to have its own public inquiry. Nicola Sturgeon has said that this will be up and running by the end of the year. She announced it in August. Um, uh, I think there will be a UK one, which is you know, Boris Johnson has said will, will, will not begin until the spring of next year. Um, so uh, there was a consultation or an engagement of sorts where where, where people were invited to uh, let the government know what they think the, the remit of the COVID inquiry should be, what the aims should be, you know, how it should be run, that sort of thing, the principles of that. And that, that closed just a couple of weeks back at the end of September, September the 30th. So I would imagine we should get something uh, a bit more detail about what the Scottish COVID inquiry might look like fairly soon. But as I said, so the one that came out today was one that was done by MPs in the House of Commons. Um, following that, we've had uh, Labour have been calling on committees in Holyrood to do something similar. So they're looking for you know a, a, a similar approach taken by MSPs as well to try and scrutinise the government's, the Scottish government's initial response. So what, how that will play out and what that will lead to, I, I don't know. But we could, we could end up running... With, have two COVID inquiries effectively in Scotland at the same time. Uh, if if MSPs agree to the, the Labour demands, we could have a you know a Hollywood committee looking at it, and then a, an independent public led inquiry. Yeah, and I mean, do you, do you think it's do you think it's important to have a, a separate Scotland inquiry? I mean, do you, do you think because a lot of the mistakes that were made were were very similar north and south of the border? I mean, is there specific lessons that we can learn up here? Do you think that are different from from other parts of the UK? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think you know inquiries are all about for a lot of people, and certainly a lot of people who will have lost loved ones during the pandemic. It's about trying to find answers, and it's trying to find yeah. you know exactly what went wrong. So something like the care homes, where you know people with the the, the virus were were put back into the care homes. I think you know there's there's definitely still a lot of questions over there, especially for for relatives. And I, I think so. So definitely, people will want a, a, a Scottish COVID inquiry, which is focused on what went wrong in Scotland. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, what went wrong in the UK and a little bit of it dedicated to Scotland, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Louise, you've been you've been writing your uh, sketch this week for the magazine on a, a slightly strange uh, exchange that took, pl- <laughs> that took place at First Minister's... Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, well, it, it, First Minister's questions last week were... Um, both, uh, both Douglas Ross and Nicola Sturgeon appeared to challenge one another to a visit to a quote-unquote working-class community, as if that was something that they... I mean, how, how weird is that? I mean, isn't that something that they should be doing on a, on a sort of routine basis rather than making a special, a special trip to a working-class community? I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? And they were both, you know, talking about, like, basically, like unveiling their working class credentials going oh no i'm more working class than you <laughs> it was just really strange like the entire like not just fmqs the entire week the two of them were talking about this um basically started by douglas ross um saying that nicholas surgeon was detached from working class communities and then they just started like bickering over it mm-hmm. and it was it was just really weird and yes they, they should be visiting parts of scotland all parts of scotland um mm-hmm. You know, there's there's the classic um, photo op at a food bank that all politicians get involved in at some point, and you know, you think is that is that the only time you're visiting these communities? Mm. So, I mean, there are there are serious to be serious for a minute. Though, there are very serious issues at, at, at stake here. I mean, there's there's the drugs death crisis, but there's also issues of of tackling poverty and, and inequality. I mean, 
do, do, do we do they risk getting lost in this uh, tussle of you know who's who's the more working class between Nicola <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon and Douglas Ross? Well, yeah, you know they're talking about this and and like in in a in a really bizarre way, and then but what's actually being lost is the people that you know they're they actually claim to be representing. You've got you know poverty in scotland is alarmingly high it's gotten worse because of the pandemic drug deaths alarmingly high alcohol deaths alarmingly high um you've got all this and and all this is happening i mean across scotland but it's particularly bad in working class communities we know the pandemic has hurt working class communities more um than more affluent areas and things like that um so you know they're they're arguing about oh um I'm more working class than you and then just ignoring the fact that that being working class means that means I mean it means so much doesn't it it means that you're more likely to be in poverty it means your life expectancy is lower it means that you're more likely to suffer from depression and things like that and and it's just being ignored well I look forward to you uh, skewering them both with your with your sketch um thank you both and now we can listen to that interview with Jackson Carlo. I suppose the first thing is congratulations on being Wag of the Year. Um, <laughs> I was interviewing Michael Maddock last week, uh, saying, you know, being one to watch must put a lot of pressure on you. You know, expecting great things you. Do you feel under pressure as Wag of the Year? Well, I, I, you know, it's really quite funny. I mean, the, the first nomination I had for anything was for one to watch, and I think everybody else who was nominated with me lost their seat at the subsequent election. So <laughs> I, I thought that was a very dangerous yeah. nomination to, to subsequently <laughs> attract. Uh, and as I said at the ceremony itself, I mean, I, I did feel it was a metaphor for the trajectory of my recent career <laughs> that I had won uh, Hero of the Year in 2018, mm-hmm. MSP of the Year in 2019, and now and now uh, WAG of the Year in 2021. And I, I mean, I, you know, I suppose I should likely say that under Douglas Ross's new robust leadership, we have flushable motion of the year <laughs> firmly in our sights. The Liberal Democrats have cornered this award for some time, but um, the, you know, the Tories are coming. <laughs> but I mean, I suppose the general point I, I also made was that I think there is a place for humour in politics. Sure. I mean, I genuinely think sometimes when we laugh together, we realise that there are certain absurdities that mm. we share and there's a certain human contact. Uh, this parliament doesn't provide the opportunities always for it. If you mm. think, and I remember Brian Taylor once remarked that um, the kind of reputation I had, if, it, if that's what it is for humour, came from some of the new ministerial appointment speeches, sure, which sure. he observed was almost the nearest we get to the Queen's speech in the House of Commons, yeah. where politicians are almost deliberately invited to make a speech which is a, more a goodwill contribution mm. to the general atmosphere of the Parliament. And I, I mean, I know it, we can't, we're not sent here to, to laugh and clown around, but I, I think if not always bald humour, good humour can have a place and it can it can in, inform and move the chamber. I mean, I remember Annabel Goldie uh, quite spontaneously on one occasion when Alex Salmond, as First Minister, was going on about uh, the government's track record in physical education. And Annabel, in those plummy sort of Kilmacomb tones, said, if patting yourself on the back, First Minister, counted as physical exercise, you might be right. <laughs> and it did actually create a, 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 a... The whole chamber laughed. And what I found quite funny at the time was um, 
Mr. Salmon himself didn't. And when some of his colleagues realised he wasn't finding it just as funny, there was a sort of a sort of frozen expression suddenly that came across people's faces. So I, I think it can also be quite a telling thing. Sure. Uh, so I'm sure. very proud to have received the award. Uh, <laughs> I said to my wife when I went home, apparently I'm Scotland's wittiest politician, and her only <laughs> contribution was to say it's not a very high bar. <laughs> so, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> but I suppose it is interesting looking at your trajectory over the last four years about, you know, going from political hero, going to MSP, going to, to Wagadi. I mean, your career has changed a lot in the last four years. I find to my astonishment I am the oldest Conservative MSP. Really? I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. And... Um, that's a surprise because yeah. I've been in politics for over 45 years since mm. I was a teenager mm. and I now feel embarrassed at all the older politicians I used to look at and think, my God, how old and past it they are <laughs> because one of the great um, truths of life is you discover when you are older that you actually don't think that much differently to when sure. you were younger. It's only when you look in the mirror that the reality is there in front of you. Mm. So I... So that coming back to this parliament now, realizing that you know I'm sort of the, the uh, the elder statesman of the group, uh, is is quite a thought, but I'm very comfortable. I mean, I I uh, achieved everything. I had no intention. I think people know originally of even seeking the leadership of the sure. party. It was a function of the position of Ruth originally having um, Finn. Yeah. Uh, and then her decision not to run again. I I'd thought she and I would run through till the 2021 campaign. And um, I assumed then that, of course, uh, with her in Butte House, I would have been there alongside her. But failing that, um, that we would probably both step back. Um, so when I ran, it was as much because I felt, you know, the content, I'd done the job for a period of time as interim. We needed to go on and do it uh, longer. Uh, but I found the, the, the whole COVID-19 thing changed the dynamic um, and I, I found I wasn't enjoying it. Sure. And uh, friends and family said it was obvious I wasn't enjoying it. Uh, and that's not to say I didn't enjoy, uh, you know, representing the Conservative position. I tried as hard as possible to be as constructive as I could be in my engagement with the First Minister. Uh, and I found that, in, you know, interesting. I mean, it, it didn't matter... What I did, half of people were absolutely furious with me and the other half were equally so for the other reasons. So either people were furious, how dare you agree with Nicola Sturgeon or how dare you not agree with Nicola Sturgeon? And I felt that it was an incredibly polarising uh, thing when it seemed to me that our first responsibility when there were a lot of unknowns about the pandemic was to work as constructively as we could with the government. Um, as time went on, I think there was room for a bit more interrogation of that support. And I found that slightly frustrating because, as I think I observed in the chamber at one point, the First Minister accepted mistakes were being made in the abstract, but never in the specific. And I felt that if we'd been more candid with one another, for example, about the emerging evidence in care homes, it's possible Parliament together could have taken action that would have led to um, a mitigation of what was unfolding. But because it became almost a pejorative stance, you know, you must support what we are doing, how sure, dare you be sure, political yeah. about it, I feel that those mistakes were compounded. And it'll only be when we finally have the public inquiry that will eventually come that we will see all of that. But by the summer of last of that year, I was pretty knackered. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Douglas by then had resigned uh, from the government. And so... 
I saw someone who was someone I had much admired, who I had encouraged. I'm old enough because of my age to more or less have been uh, an advocate and mentor to many of the younger politicians in the group over those years. And I thought we had in um, Douglas someone who could take the leadership of the party forward well into this parliament, which would not have been my intention in any event. And I kind of didn't know how the, the, vi the coronavirus thing was going to unfold. And so I thought, look, now is the time to do it. And um, I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. So it was... Because your resignation was a surprise. Really. Well, yes. I mean, it was a complete surprise. And that was it with the intention. I had told one or two people... Uh -huh. Uh, of my train of thought. Sure. I mean, I initially took the view that um, whatever the outcome of the election, I was going to go on polling day. When I became leader, I'd originally intended to run through until the council elections next year. Sure. Then when the virus came along, I thought, no, I'm going to go immediately on polling day. And then as the virus unfolded, I thought, no, I think what the party now needs is, as I say, I was frankly exhausted yeah. by it. Because that whole initial six months must have been a huge strain for the First Minister. Mm. But this was before we had Zoom. We were still trying to manage telephone calls. Parliament was closed. Yeah. There was no infrastructure to speak of. I mean, it was an incredibly um, difficult job. It was also very difficult to get any cut through within the media. And uh, I just felt physically very exhausted by the whole thing. Um, and so as that process unfolded, no, I decided, you know, there is now an alternative uh, and I'm, I'm happy to go. So I've read subsequently of all the apparent, I mean, which, of course, if they were true, you would have expected to have leaked out in the papers the weekend before I made the announcement. Nothing leaked out at all because it was my decision. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the reality. There was no plot, there was no secret meeting between Ruth Davis and Douglas Ross. To well, I'm sure that Douglas and Ruth met, but in the knowledge of the handful of people who understood what my intentions were going sure, to be. So, sure. I mean, I didn't want to just resign into a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. clearly there was some discussion going on. But, I mean, was there a plot? No, I, I've said to people, if I'd thought there was a plot going on, I'd have been the first member of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's been a lot of exaggerated nonsense. Sure, sure, sure. I, I mean, it's futile to correct all these things because people <laughs> want to believe what they believe. Yeah, but yeah. My, I stand by the fact, if there was this great emerging plot, you'd have thought it would have been something much more publicly mm -hmm. aware, understood. Uh, how did you feel when you stood there? Because this was, you know, you said this wasn't a job that you'd, you know, aspired for, but you stood before in 2011. Yeah. I think your name would be mentioned in the 90s as well yeah. as a possible leader. So to have this job and then to... Well, the party made the right decision in 2011 when they sure, picked Ruth. Sure. I mean, Ruth was a force of nature. It was yeah. an absolute joy and a roller coaster to work alongside mm. her for 10 years. We had an incredibly close working relationship. I think the fact that we were of different generations worked well. Mm. Um, but I, I suppose that was the age at which I would probably have more reasonably um, had the energy and the stamina to be leader over a longer period of time. Sure. Uh, so, no, I mean, by this time, I, I, I was very comfortable with the decision I made, and I'm very comfortable doing what I'm doing now. I mean, uh, it, it, they're not quite sure what to do with me at times, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm very happy convening the, the Petitions Committee, which is a committee yeah. I really, really enjoyed mm. when I was on it, and from which... Um, I first identified the whole mesh issue, which has become a very important part of uh, my political work in the last two parliaments. So this is where uh, women who uh, had complications after Absolutely. pregnancy were... were... Well, no, well, not so much after pregnancy. I mean, just incontinence problems, sure. which could arise from all manner of different uh, issues. But um, the whole transvaginal mesh, transvaginal mesh, it was probably one of the medical scandals um, of the century, the first real big one. Mm. 
And, um, you know, that involved cross-party working, mm -hmm. but it involved a really sustained effort by a handful of us against a medical establishment. And I'm absolutely delighted that, you know, here we are now eight years later with the government bringing forward primary legislation, which will offer complete redress. Um, although the issue of mesh continues, because whilst it's been most obviously identified in the campaign led by women. There are lots of men and children who've had mesh for hernia and for other operations who typically, uh, particularly in the case of men, are less inclined to step forward to discuss their health problems, but who have seen now the work that has been done in relation to the women and are stepping forward. Um, and so I think that the, 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 the use of mesh is a primary uh, option in the health service is something that I think still uh, requires to be pursued and examined. But so that has been an important part of, of, of my life uh, and I'm happy to sit in the corporate body as well. So I mean um, this parliament so far and speak on issues that appeal to me uh, I'm, and, and also actually represent the people of Eastwood which mm. you know I'm delighted to be back doing um, without the complications of really having to spend less time doing that because I was deputy or, or, yeah. or leader. Um, I'm very comfortable with that. I remember when Ruth Davidson stood down, and I suppose I hadn't really appreciated it at the time, but she you know, spent more time with Finn. She talked about the fact that as leader you're expected not just to, to be in Parliament, not just to be representing your constituency, but you've got to go around all the sort of the local associations and sort of every sort of speaking event you can and all that sort of stuff. So it's quite a busy forum. Well, I like all that. Right. <laughs> Actually, sure. funnily enough, when I had the conversation with Theresa May when uh, she was Prime Minister, both of us shared that upbringing. Mm. Uh, we were both um, products of our party. We started as local volunteers. Yeah. We were members of local associations. We became uh, local activists and office bearers and uh, campaigned with the party. I mean, I, I look at someone like David Cameron, who was really parachuted in as prime minister sure. with no practical knowledge or working of, of the party at yeah. all. And I suppose you could equally say that of Ruth, who emerged very... Uh, suddenly um, in a by-election and then became leader. So that side of it, I, I, I actually didn't mind at sure. all. I mean, she managed to get out just in time to avoid having to fight a general election in 20, <laughs> 2019, which was very canny of her. Um, and obviously also not to then uh, be part of the, although she became part of the, the campaign in 2021. But I, I think, and I could see, and I think people forget that as the leader of a Scottish opposition party, she was fighting twice the number of elections, really of any UK politician. Not only did we have the Euro referendum, but we had the Scottish independence referendum. Not only did we have the general elections of 2015 and 2017, but we had the Scottish elections of 2016 as well. So, I, I and Ruth was never uh, a kind of half in yeah. type politician. and. I mean, I had discussions with her during I said, look, you know, just watch that you don't burn out from all of this. And I think, frankly, um, when the opportunity came along between elections uh, to start a family, um, it led to her just rethinking yeah. where, she, where she was in life. By then, she'd done nearly 10 years as leader of a political party, which is quite something. Um, and so, you know, I understood all the reasons, even though I much regretted them. I suppose the one obligation of being party leader is that you, you have to go to party conference. You're not at party conference this year, because we were speaking just now when party conference is on in Manchester. Are you, are you missing it? Do you regret not going? Are you... In a small way. But, you know, I, I was at the party conference when the Brighton bomb went off. Oh, wow. That was 1984. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I remember being outside the Grand Hotel in the small hours of the morning, having been woken out of bed by the explosion. Um, Where were you close by? Then? Yeah, very close by. Uh, you know, we were helping bring deck chairs up from the beach, that sort of thing. And the wife of the uh, president of the Scottish Conservatives, in whose room behind whose bath panel the bomb had been, uh, was one of those who died. Right. Uh, not immediately, but you know, in over the course of a few weeks after the blast, uh, and Donald. Uh, McLean himself um, suffered horrendous injuries. But until then, um, party conference was a really very different thing. Right, okay. There was very little security. There was the, the obvious police presence to deter uh, large protests. Sure. But the expectation sure. that there was a fundamental threat to life was not there. And cabinet ministers and people circulated in the conference in a very open and free way. And progressively, I think that changed. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, having enjoyed those days, the conferences I subsequently went to, I enjoyed somewhat less. Sure. Uh, and I have to say, when I look at some of them now, um, there are far too many lobbyists and external um, people there trying to gain influence or make their case. And there are an awful lot of young men in suits. Uh, and I don't have the same sense of them as being a family party, sure. uh, which I think is where party conferences one what party conferences once were. Um, as a leader, yes, I did go down, um, and that you know, uh, you, <laughs> part of your hope and expectation is the prime minister will come to your Scottish reception and not say something that's going to be a devastating <laughs> news story, and he does his best. <laughs> But I mean, I, but I, 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 you know, I, I enjoyed that. What was fascinating, mm. I should say, is that after twenty sixteen, uh, the Scottish reception became one of the biggest receptions at conference, mm. uh, and for a party that had in Scotland been in the doldrums for so long, uh, to have people coming along saying we want to come to the reception with a bit of the party that's winning again, mm. you know, Ruth and I had to kind of look at one another <laughs> and all of that. But she herself was a big draw, and so we had. Uh, hundreds of people really interested in participating in Scottish events. So I did welcome the fact that Scotland, uh, the issues that we face, the union, an interest in the work that we are doing, um, has become much more apparent at conference. Mm. And of course, that's led to quite a lot of people wanting to come up and work for the party and to right, do okay. you know research work for us up here too. Sure. So it's, it's had its positive dynamic. Mm. But uh, I'm very happy to leave it to all our new members, and quite a lot of them, I think, have been down at, uh, at, at, in Manchester this week. How important is it for, for Douglas Ross to be there to make a, a good impression, as it were? Oh, yeah. I mean, the leader has to make... Uh, you know, I had to make an awkward speech in sure. uh, 2019 because I had to reposition where we stood in the reality of the election of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister with the yeah. agenda he was pursuing in Brexit, something I'd not voted for, but which I accepted... Uh, more easily than Ruth did, sure. um, was the outcome of a national UK-wide referendum and that that was the reality of where we were going. Um, so I had to do that, at the same time as making clear to him uh, that I was the leader of the Scottish Conservatives and couldn't always be expected to agree with him, a position he understood. I mean, he said to me it was exactly the same relationship he'd had with David Cameron when he was Mayor of London. So sure. he said, I fully understand that you sometimes have to take a position which will disagree with me. Pause. Just don't do it every day. <laughs> but so I mean, I found him very engaging in that sense. And although I know his public persona and reputation, um, in the dealings I had with him as leaders, yeah, uh, he was completely frank and straightforward and delivered. 
you, you said uh, when he became leader, he's got a hell of a lot to prove to me and to the, the country. And I said that to him. Yeah. Uh, that, that I had the conversation. I said, look, Prime Minister, there's no point in me beating about the bush yeah. here. Uh, you calling people letterboxes and some of the other things you've said, I've had to take, you know, and think we're a disgrace. Yeah. I said, but you are the Prime Minister and I now work with you. And what I would like to do is to draw a line mm -hmm. uh, and to judge you now by the relationship that we are able to evolve going forward. And, I mean, he took that on the chin. And as I say, in any dealings we had thereafter, I felt that I had a frank relationship with them and that, you know, it, it, I didn't have cause to, again, question the positions he took so, with so me. He, he proved himself then? In, in the sense that he, he delivered on the things he said yeah. and he um, was completely straightforward with me and, um, you know, and, and so I respected that and, and got on well with him, I have to say. I mean, how does this relationship with the Scottish Party, because obviously there was all the, um, the Operation R stuff. Yeah, yeah. The idea that well, that was kind of rather before he became leader. Yes. Uh, and I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, he'll never be everybody's cup of tea. No. Uh, but I also think we've moved on. Um, you know, I think, and this was really something that was initiated by Ruth. I think Ruth herself was such a large personality and recognised as a UK-wide leader that the importance of the Prime Minister, clearly over the UK-wide government and our national agenda was, was primary. But given that we now did have a devolved parliament and a much more commanding presence as our own leader, um, the requirement of the Prime Minister to insert themselves into Scottish elections and things, I think it's far less. I, I mean, I, I found all the, the talk last uh, May about why wasn't Boris here in the campaign. But why would he be? This was a Scottish campaign. And frankly, as a Scottish leadership, we are capable of running these campaigns in ourse ourselves now. So our, our relationship with the UK White Party is over issues concerned with the UK and in UK elections, but as a Scottish party with a strong uh, leadership and with 31 MSPs, again, the largest opposition party in uh, Holyrood, at Westminster and at uh, local authority level, um, we are strong enough and able enough now to, to, to run ourselves. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's a, I suppose that's a quite interesting uh, discussion, the idea of the Scottish Tory party running themselves, because that was something you were quite posted during the 2011? Oh, I don't believe in us having a separate party. Sure, okay. I mean, I mean I've always joked, we haven't been the Tories since 1841, mm -hmm. um, but we're still the effing Tories to quite a sizable <laughs> portion of the electorate. And sure. I, I'm afraid I took the view that it wouldn't matter what we called ourselves. Yeah. I thought it was naive in the extreme for people to really believe. Um, and I, I, I have to say, I also was rather of the view that if we took the view that we could be independent of the UK Conservative Party, then it was a difficult question to answer as to why we didn't think we could be independent of the UK. And to my mind, you know, there was a symmetry in all of these things. We are part of a larger entity, but because of the devolved settlement, um, a very much more independently uh, minded party on the domestic agenda here in Scotland. And I mean, I, I mean you look at the health service as an example of that where we've never really embraced the Blair or Cameron health service reforms. We've accepted free at the point of need and delivery. Uh, our health service is still managed by the state. We've fundamental criticisms over the way that is done. Um, but our agenda is to work to make that 
better within the framework that exists. Uh, and that is different now to the rest of the UK. As you said, 31 MSPs, uh, largest group in, in uh, opposition group in Westminster and the councils. Um, uh, that's a far cry from uh, uh, 97, I think, a disaster of biblical proportions, you call it. I mean, you've been in the party for, did you say, 40 40, 45 years? 45 yes. years, yes. You've been. I started in the mid 70s, yeah. I, I mean, the, yeah, it was my great misfortune to be on with Bernard Ponsonby on the results programme in 1979. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 1997, sorry. Um, <laughs> and I remember my instruction was simply to go and fill in until one of our victorious MPs was able to relieve me. Six and a half hours later, <laughs> I could have felt I'd done my shift. But, um, you know, these are the things that happen. Yeah. Uh, it, it, arguably, if we didn't believe in first past the post, the percentage we of vote that we attracted in that election um, is still higher than... The percentage of the vote we've attracted since. Right. Uh, we were near a 30%, um, and we've yet to get to that, mm. uh, even as we recover. Uh, but we didn't. We believed in a first past the post system, and that was, that was yeah. the, the outcome of it. Uh, and an awful lot of things have followed from that. But yes, no, I mean, I touched on Brighton. I mean, mm. um, and there are lots of other kind of things that I'm probably the last man standing mm. or the last person standing, having been present at over over those decades. Uh, things you look back on, the 1997 election, so reading the cuttings before I came here, and it just, you know, it does, it feels like a completely different world 25 years ago, but it must have just been hellish, to keep it with the biblical metaphor, to be a Tory in 1997, particularly in Scotland. Particularly Do you know, it was actually, it was actually not a bad campaign. Right, okay. Um, with hindsight, I understand that everybody knew they were getting rid of us, so they didn't feel they had to be quite so nasty to us. I, 92 was actually a much more poisonous election, right, okay. um, uh, where we survived with and actually increased by one the number of MPs that we returned. Uh, and I remember saying on polling day, well, you know, the director of the party, Roger Pratt, said to me, what do you think the result's going to be? I said, well, we're either going to hold all our seats or we're going to lose all our seats. I didn't quite have the courage of my convictions to go for option B, but I, I did... I did find the atmosphere strange, mm. uh, and I realise now that you know that the country had decided it was about to make a decisive change after eighteen years. I mean, you know, and our politics—you you never campaign to lose, but our politics obviously depends upon um, parties of different persuasion succeeding. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, it, for the body politic, it's a healthy thing that a government falls and is replaced. You never campaign for it, but but I think you recognise that that is what creates momentum in our politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, what were the lessons that you learned from that defeat, that disaster for the party? What the, you know, how did the party, how did the party recover to get to the point where it now has 31 MSPs? Uh, well, uh, I think we'd become a bit rural, mm -hmm. a bit patrician. Um, I think all governments can become arrogant and divorced. I think this current government here in Scotland has fallen a little into that trap. They can believe that a mandate means that their governance is perpetual and inevitable. And it was interesting to me, the lesson I've learned is that the generation of politicians that are elected from opposition into government are very conscious of the long march towards that mm. success. But the longer the government is in office 
and that generation retires and fades and is replaced instead by elected representatives who know nothing other than their own party to be in power, the more arrogant, I think, um, those representatives tend to become. They think it is almost their right to be the party of government. And I think that that is ultimately a rock on which most administrations fall. Mm. I think it happened with the Labour administration after 13 years. It's harder to tell with the current UK administration because, of course, it was a coalition before it was a government. So it wasn't, the the analogy is not quite the same. But I feel it very much here in Scotland. Mm. Um, And, you know, we are in a situation at the moment where it is really the fact that 45% of people in Scotland have a sustained commitment to independence, which is producing a polarised outcome based on a single issue, it seems to me, almost to the exclusion of really the normal rules of politics, which would be how are you actually uh, giving effect to the business of government, whether it be health, education, law and order, any of these things, where I think there are serious deficiencies with this government, which it's almost getting away with because of this polarisation around the constitutional question. And I suppose I didn't really foresee in '97. I thought change would come, obviously. Uh, I don't think I ever quite believed George Robertson's view that they would kill the SNP stone dead by creating a Scottish Parliament. Let's face it, I think that the Scottish Parliament was created on an electoral model that Labour thought would grant it power in perpetuity with a third party. What they didn't come to realise was that the referendum itself changed the dynamics decisively uh, and that we now really are a parliament elected around that constitutional question. And the difficulty for opposition parties is that there are three parties that believe in the uh, continuity of the United Kingdom. And so that pro-union voters split over all three. But if you look at the... A general election of 2019. I mean, John Swinney stood up in the chamber and said that I'd said the union it was the heart of the 2019 campaign. Jackson Carlaw said the union was on the ballot paper and the Tories lost half their seats. Look at the share of the vote. SNP 45, parties in support of the union 55. The, the, the union was on the ballot paper in 2019 and just as they did in 2014, more people voted for parties supporting the UK than did before. But under a first-past-the-post system, a different outcome came about. And similarly, in, in, in May this year, you know, the, it's still, I think, the polarising question. And I wonder, you know, as we go forward, will we get back to um, a politics based on ideas and about values and about, you know, how all of those public services for which we are responsible and which, let's face it, we were told way back at the dawn of devolution, if Scots decide these things in a Scottish Parliament in Scotland, then the outcomes will be far better than they would ever have been being decided by Scottish people sitting at a Parliament in Westminster. And I think it's arguable that the outcomes are better. Uh, Failing standards in education, uh, huge issues with our health service currently, um, and, you know, I think real fallout consequences of the decision to move to a single police force with Police Scotland without, you know, any real checks and balances in relation to that. So I don't, you know, I sometimes think have the promises of 1997 been fulfilled? Not really, albeit I think that I now accept that the democratic institutions that have been built 
are capable of delivering far more than they currently do. Mm. How do we escape that polarising question? And, and aren't you partly responsible for the fact that we're still having this polarised debate? And, you know, and that you, your campaign in 2019 was about independence. Yeah, because it is actually the, the, the issue that is uh, mostly at the forefront of people's minds. And um, I know that we all say, look, we need to talk about far more than all of that. We actually produced manifesto. We had a hugely detailed manifesto in this election, probably the most detailed manifesto in May that I've seen us present. And not many people were actually that interested in discussing it. <laughs> I mean, they all wanted to talk about the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and so it was an election, you know, out of, you know, fear, hope, whatever way you want to look at it. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there is an awareness of these other issues. Um, Yet there is this concern about the constitution still being at the heart of it all, and I don't know how we resolve it because I, you know, I, I, I did understand that the referendum of twenty fourteen was meant to be a once in a generational event, uh, and yet the campaign for another one began straight away. And if we had another one and the outcome was the same, I dare say the outcome for a third would start straight away. The first minister herself has consistently refused to rule out a subsequent referendum after the next one if it didn't work out in our favour. So it does seem to me that you know that will go on. I know we call on the SNP to move on, but I mean, their raison d'etre is independence. So, I mean, if they're not campaigning for that, you know, what are they for? So I, I do think we're in a bit of a cul-de-sac. Um, and it, it's harder, I think, in a unicameral parliament without the same checks and balances to really ensure that we are focusing on some of the political stuff that I think could really benefit people. Mm. Mm. Um, let's talk about a couple of the other issues mm. probably not talking about so much. Uh, one of which is you're a fairly prominent supporter of Lee McCarthy's assisted yeah. time bill. Why is that important to you? Why have you sort of put into that? I, I've always been quite liberal in that sense as a Conservative. I mean, I was the lead spokesman for us on um, same-sex marriage uh, as part of the uh, all-party uh, group that promoted that legislation. Um, and I, I, I've always had a fairly uh, liberal mind about many of these uh, types of issues. I was very struck by the phrase that we all have a right to life, but we don't have a duty to live. And that has always struck me as being very pertinent. Um, I've had family members who've, who would have exercised the option okay. uh, of assisted dying if it was there, and family members who would not. So it's not out of any uh, belief that we should construct a situation where there is an inevitability or a drift towards, as some people argue, this being you know the thin end of the wedge or a slippery slope. It is just my view that, particularly as medical technology advances, and the capability of keeping people alive beyond when they would judge their quality of life to be as they would wish it, and for them to have to suffer what for them is an intolerable and ignominious end. And it is in those circumstances. It's not just because somebody wakes up, and I don't support the idea that somebody could wake up one day and think it was a nice idea to end their life. I don't, you know, I understand that we've got to be incredibly careful that the judgment is being exercised is one that has been arrived at with proper and due consideration. But I, and I think that is neither is that at the expense of a much 
wider look at the way that we deliver palliative care in Scotland, you know, the fact that that really still rests on a voluntary sector and the donations and goodwill of organisations is to me not sustainable with an ageing demographic, with more people who will want to choose that option. Even were assisted suicide available, Mm. uh, many will want to choose that option. So for me, it is both things that have to be considered. Um, but I, I, I do very much support the, the right of those to choose. And I, and I see the, the move in opinion. Hmm. I mean, over the Parliament since Margot first came forward with a bill which initiated the discussion, but which she came herself to accept was unamendable. Sure. Uh, through the second bill that Patrick Harvey lodged, from there being minority support to really overwhelming public support now for a change in the position, to a move now in the medical professions, many of whom now agreed to take more neutral stance rather than a proactive stance, uh, and most of that underpinned by a medical profession who don't want themselves to be compelled to have to participate in the process, which I also understand. So I think that the, the move in opinion is changing too. Uh, and I would like it to happen in a considered way. I don't want it to be ever argued that this is necessary because there are more old people, sure. uh, which I think would be appalling. Uh, I think that the arguments um, are perfectly reasonable and can be presented, and we can now come up with a legislative solution uh, following the model of other countries like New Zealand and elsewhere uh, that is not, if you like, um, striding out ahead of anybody else but is able now to incorporate and reflect the experience of other countries as well and where safeguards further safeguards are needed to incorporate those too mm. how likely do you think it is very it is? i mean i think that uh, there is i mean from my understanding is there is now an absolute majority of the current parliament who are disposed to support the legislation uh, possibly as much as two-thirds of the parliament uh, I think the Scottish Government is willing to make a move that, sure. as we know in their manifesto, there was a, a, a commitment to a citizens' assembly on the issue of assisted dying. Uh, I think we have come forward with this bill in Liam's name at the start of the Parliament. Uh, so there is the whole five-year Parliament for this to be properly considered, consulted upon, uh, argued for all the discussions uh, to be incorporated into whatever the final shape of that legislation might be. Um, but I think that it, it has a really real prospect this time of, of being successful. Mm. Um, uh, other issues, you obviously represent Eastwood, as you said, which is the area with, I, I think, the, the largest proportion of, of Jewish people in Scotland. About half. Half, half of all Jewish people in Scotland. Yeah. So, um, are you, you've sort of expressed some anxiety about the, the Green Ministers. Uh, they've not adopted the uh, IHRA uh, definition of anti-Semitism. Um, are you? Do you think they should? Are you? Are you worried that the? Uh, how are your constituents feeling about it? Maybe that's the better way of asking the question. Well, I, I think two things. Firstly, yes, I'm very concerned that we have, as are the community, who raised this issue specifically with the first minister in an engagement uh, conference Zoom call that she had with them, prior to her appointment of the green ministers, when it was being speculated upon. Uh, every political party in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, other than the Green Party, has adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism. It's it's an accepted standard by governments, countries, political parties across the Western world. Uh, And inherent within it is an acceptance of the right of um, self-determination and state of Israel to exist. And the Green Party takes issues with that. 
And not only do they not support the IHRA um, definition of anti-Semitism, they refused to accept or even acknowledge receipt of the Jewish community manifesto in the Scottish elections. The other parties accepted it, SNP, Labour, Liberal, Conservative accepted and supported the document. They wouldn't even acknowledge that they had received it. Um, and their overt hostility, uh, I think, is a cause of very considerable concern uh, to Scotland's Jewish community. Now, I've written to the First Minister. I've had a response, which for me is inadequate. Um, it falls short of the commitments she gave to Peter Smith in a recent ITN interview where she said she would discuss these matters with Green Ministers. I've had no indication that she's done that. Uh, and now all she says is she expects all ministers to adhere to the standard. Well, of course. Uh, but I think given the pejorative position the Greens have taken, I would have expected her to go further and to have sought that assurance quite specifically from those Green ministers. And the suspicion of the Jewish community is that they are small and that... They are small. A small community. And that the First Minister has judged that their votes don't weigh very heavily in comparison to, say, the Muslim community or other communities. And I would therefore go on to say that I think that the language and rhetoric used by Hamza Yusuf uh, was highly inflammatory. I thought it should, uh, First Minister should have disassociated herself from it in the recent uh, troubles that took place in Gaza because it almost seemed to legitimise a very threatening and menacing behaviour which led to convoys of cars driving through and gathering around synagogues in Eastwood uh, and language, uh, incidents in schools that we had not seen in over a decade and a sense that this was being condoned by the Scottish Government. So I thought that was reckless and irresponsible and I think we have a huge duty irrespective of the size of any community in Scotland. But obviously to me, not only is it a sizable minority community, I mean, it's, it's, it's no bigger than the Muslim community in my constituency. They're both about three to 4,000. Um, much smaller than it was when I was a boy. There were 12,000 um, adult Jews in uh, Eastwood when I was growing up. But it was the community in which I grew up. I, I mean, every second house in the street I lived in uh, was Jewish. I, I mean, I thought that, of course, I didn't knew you better. Yeah. I mean, that was everybody's experience. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I remember um, being invited to go to a mitzvah when I was a young teenager. And anyhow, we were down in Trude and I thought, I'll go into a card shop and get a mitzvah card. And the kind of looks of bewilderment on the faces of people in the shop when I asked for a mitzvah, ah, what? <laughs> you know, because what's any Jewish community down there? And I think that a lot of it has been fueled by ignorance. And the very fact that 50% of the Jewish community lives in Eastwood, some more on the south side of Glasgow, a reasonably sized community in Edinburgh, um, some up in Aberdeen and Inverness, but in large parts of Scotland, no community, and therefore no one to challenge any of the um, ignorance or rhetoric that is sometimes used. And that's why I very much have valued the establishment by non-Jewish-based uh, Jewish community relations groups in different parts of the Israel community relations groups in different parts of Scotland, uh, and in universities, um, who uh, you know are trying to ensure that you know that prejudice and ignorance is not the basis of um, the relationship we have with with the issue. I mean, <laughs> there are as many uh, members of the Jewish community in in my constituency 
who were opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu mm. uh, or who are now opponents of the present Israeli government. They, they don't necessarily agree with the government of Israel. Uh, they believe in the right of Israel to exist as a state. But they too have got fundamental concerns, just as I have about the government of you know, the United Kingdom from time to time. Um, but the idea that the Jewish community here in Scotland are responsible primarily and should have to give account for the government of Israel and should be punished or called out or persecuted for that. It's a complete disgrace. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a couple more questions then. Twenty twenty six. Will you stand again? I don't know. Too soon. It's too soon to say. I mean, I'm. I'm I really enjoy yeah. um, representing Eastwood. I mean, I mean, I was obviously a member regionally for. Um, from 2007 to, 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 to 2016 um, and I hadn't fully appreciated just how different it would be. Uh, it was very interesting to me the day I was elected as the MSP for Eastwood, the complete change in the volume of casework. I think it is the case, even though there are regional and constituency representatives, that the public, in the first instance, identify with their constituency representative. And so the nature of the casework, as a regional member, tended to be wider campaigns on issues which were more generic. The issues I deal with now are very much personal and fundamental. And I don't know when I was a very young teenage politician whether I would have found that wholly engaging you know you're all very radical and interested in the big things at that stage now I do and sure. I very much enjoy uh, if that's the right word but very much take seriously the engagement I have a uh, with individuals and supporting the community and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that so you know I have no particular ambition I mean, I've been the leader. I mean, Douglas need, doesn't need to look over his shoulder. I'm not planning a comeback. So my future is really concerned with, yeah. um, you know, being a voice, obviously, uh, to uh, members of the party here who are newer and, and look to have that experience, but to representing the Eastwood constituency. What I'll feel like, and I mean, you know, I'm the oldest Conservative MSP already. I mean, I remember John Major said when he lost the 1997 Election, he came out onto the streets, uh, out onto Downing Street, and said, "When the curtain comes down, it's time to get off the stage." And I, I, I am conscious, however young I might feel, that some politicians have maybe carried on longer than they should have done. Part of your contract is to make way for others at some point. Um, that's not me saying that at the age of sixty-seven, I'll think that's yet time for me, sure. but it might be. Talking of curtains and stages, uh, uh, from Hollywood magazine, couldn't be listen to you without asking about the marionettes. Uh, <laughs> have, yeah. you, have, you, have you dug them out again? No, the, the, 60, sure. the 68 marionettes yeah. that I noticed now have become, turned into be quite a commercial investment, oh, actually. Right. Okay. <laughs> they, they, are, they are becoming a, a rarity. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I'm looking forward and hoping that in due course I will have grandchildren, which sure, will allow sure. them to make okay. a, a subsequent appearance. I have a couple of times wondered uh, if I should get a couple of them out for a little photo montage to send Hollywood magazine, of which my staff have disabused me very forcibly. <laughs> Absolutely. No way is any such thing to happen. But, you know, I don't always listen to my staff, so who knows? Sure, sure. <laughs>